Amen. Please be seated. I do welcome you if you are a visitor here. My name is uh, uh, David, and uh, it's my privilege this morning to bring God's Word to you. And just as we were singing at the end that God's people set His counsel at naught, and they ignored it, I hope that we won't uh, do that. Congratulations to Bernard and Esther as well, and uh, Alistair and Rosemary. Is it not your anniversary as well? Not yet. Not yet. It's getting there. Um, What's a, sorry, what is a golden anniversary? 50th. Wow. 50 years married. Okay, some of us have a wee way to go. Um, that's tremendous. Congratulations to you. And again, also, if you're, if you're new here and you're new to this city, um, you are very, very welcome. And if there's any way that we can help you uh, in the church here, please do speak to me afterwards. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, We're going to look at verses 9 to 13, but I'm going to read from verse 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Well, we're going to look at verses uh, 9 to 13, and as you can see, I've entitled it Soma Sarks and Salvation um, because I like alliteration and because uh, these words are very different from the words that you get in a lot of today's society from politicians, sadly from preachers as well, because when you hear words, they're often just like sound bites, and you think, well, what does that mean? You know, we're all for love. What does that mean? And, and it, it's often meaningless. One of the most amazing things about Romans, and we've been going through it, and we're into Romans chapter 8, and I do it, and I keep thinking, okay, it can't get any better than this. And each bit builds on, and it gets better and better. And these words have phenomenal meaning. So we are going to look at the words that are here, but two in particular. One is soma, which just means the body, and the other is sarks, which is translated, it's difficult to translate, the, the sinful nature 
the NIV often translates it, or the flesh as uh, translated here. And the flesh and the body are uh, different. So, and then we're going to look at, at salvation. Now, let me explain what the problem here is. You have a, all of you have a physical body, and you may not like thinking about your physical body. I don't often like thinking about my physical body. I think mirrors are an invention of the devil. Um, I, I prefer to be able just to, to imagine what my body is like, not see it. And I feel sorry for the rest of you standing looking at it just now. Uh, others of you, I've, I was reading an article yesterday that just now it was uh, complaining about the fact that men, young men, are more concerned about their bodies than young women. And, you know, they're all into this um, vegan food and Huel or whatever it's called. If you don't know what it is, you don't want to know. Um, it, it's, it's basically just the most disgusting food possible. It's non-food, and it's meant to make you fit and healthy. And, you know, they're always down at the gym, and, you know, we used to speak of a six-pack. Apparently, that's useless now. It has to be an eight-pack. Um, uh, I, I go for a single-pack myself, but... <laughs> They, they, you know, uh, guys are really, really concerned about their bodies, you know, and, and they spend more time looking in the mirror and, and, and preening than women do. Now, I find this really hard to believe coming from my generation, but apparently some of you young guys here, you're looking going, yeah, that's me. My body's really cool. Um, but here's the thing about our bodies. Our, bo- our bodies are wonderful, by the way. It's incredible what we can use our bodies for and uh, and it's incredible how they are made and how intricate they are but there are so many things that are wrong we do things we don't want to do and that's where this this sarks comes in this the flesh the sinful nature so for example our bodies were designed to eat but we overeat we're gluttonous we have one too many it's the same with, with drinking. The Bible says that we give thanks to God for the wine that makes glad the heart of a man. But we overindulge. Or take our, our bodies, our, our, our sexual bodies. And there's a, there's a purpose and a reason for that. It's God who gave us sex, not the devil. And yet, we're racked by pornography. And some of you who are sitting here You know that it's wrong, but you will still do it. Why? It's because of this flesh, this sinful nature. We know that it's wrong to be bad-tempered, but we can be, some of you this week, have been just incredibly angry and bad-tempered. Selfish ambition. We know we're supposed to care for others, but really what we want is ambition for ourselves. And then our bodies were designed to live in habitations or houses. And uh, uh, the Lord has provided means for us to do that. And one of those means is money. And yet the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I was reading Chrysostom again this week. And he, he says this. We build houses that we may have a habitation. Not that we may make an ambitious display. What is beyond our wants is superfluous and useless. Why would you live in a house that has 10 bedrooms if there's just you? I remember visiting a house once, and it was in a gated community, and it was the most magnificent house. And it was a couple that lived in it, and it had 11 bedrooms. Why? You must be very hospitable people. No, they were in a gated community. They wanted to keep people out. 
Why would we do that? And yet, we, we, in, in our culture, the kind of sign of prosperity and growth is you keep moving to a bigger and bigger house. Now, you have lots of children, you need a bigger house. But you say at our, our age and the man's, I mean, we're rattling around a couple and there's four bedrooms in that house. It's great, we've just been gutting things out for, for all over it. But, you know, in, in our culture, we kind of keep providing for ourselves and our bodies need more and we need more and we need more. And it's just wrong. Uh, Chrysostom goes on to say, it's, what's beyond your wants is superfluous and useless. Put on a sandal which is larger than your foot. You will not endure it, for it is a hindrance to the, the step. Thus also a house larger than necessity requires is an impediment to your progress towards heaven. See, our, our sarks, our flesh, desires more and more and more. It can never be satisfied. And that's what Paul is writing about here. And he's talking about how we can be free from that, how it affects our soma, our body. And just for me, what we're, what we're looking at is just the most incredible and, and wonderful thing and, and very, very deep thing. So he said to us, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? The law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. As a result, there are those who live according to the flesh, and then there are those who live according to the Spirit. The one leads to death, the other leads to life and peace. So, let's just go through this. Life in the realm of the Spirit. What does that mean? You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit. This is what this is saying. Every person who is a Christian, not every person who goes to church, not every person who says they're a Christian, but every person who is really a follower of Jesus Christ has been transferred into a new kingdom in which the spirit rather than the flesh rules. To put it another way, you are in the spirit if the spirit is in you. The hallmark of the real Christian is the possession or indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every human being has indwelling sin. Not every human being is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every true Christian has the Spirit. Paul puts it very bluntly. If we do not have Christ's Spirit, we do not have Christ. It is entirely wrong to say that you can become a Christian or be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you will have gone to churches where you've been taught you've become a Christian. Now you need to receive the Spirit. That is wrong. You cannot become a Christian without the Spirit. I understand why people do it, because they've been nominal Christians and then... They've had this incredible experience, uh, and they would often talk about it as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But baptism is an initiation. It's not something that's further down the road. And in order to become a Christian, the Holy Spirit works in your life. And he makes such a difference. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we're all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. You do not have in a church Christians who've got the Holy Spirit and Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit. And so I'll say this. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying it, Paul's saying it. The Holy Spirit's inspired this. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. And that testifies to the profound reality of what being a Christian is. It is something so radical, so deep, so internal to us. 
It is not primarily, first of all, about living a Christian lifestyle or doing religious things. It is God working in your life, giving you a new heart, giving you new desires. It is God changing. It is God changing you. God overcoming the sarks, the, the, the sinful nature within us. You'll note, by the way, here that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And it's not confusing the Trinity. It's just simply saying that what the Father does, He does through the Son. And what the Son does, He does through the Spirit. It's like when Paul was preaching at uh, the riverside and the Lord opened Lydia's heart. You know, I love it when I see people come to the church and you're trying to explain and you're trying to tell them about Jesus and they're just not getting it and they're just not getting it and then someone walks in and they maybe come to you and they'll say something like, do you know this, I'm really loving reading the Bible and I'm really loving hearing about Jesus and I don't understand why. And it's because the Spirit is at work. It's because the Spirit is, is just guiding and helping and changing. It's like when the, the famous Methodist John Wesley was converted. He, went, uh, he would have said he was a Christian. But he went into a, a chapel in uh, a church in London. And what was being read was actually Luther's preface to Romans... And Wesley famously describes how, as he heard it being read, his heart was strangely warmed. He wasn't being manipulated. It wasn't lots of emotional music. It wasn't people yelling at him. It was just, as he, as he heard someone speaking about what someone else had said about Romans, he heard the word of God and the Spirit worked in his life and changed his life. So our life... As Christians, Paul says, is in the realm of the Spirit. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Every believer here has the Holy Spirit. You may not feel like that. You may question that. But if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And that has phenomenal implications. Here's the second one. It has phenomenal implications for our life. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. We are given spiritual life now in this body of death. And the body that's spoken of here is not the flesh. It's just our bodies, our physical bodies. And it's saying something that's incredibly important, reminding us what we know but we don't want to face up to, that our bodies are mortal, that we are subject to death and we are destined for death. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this says, the moment we enter into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. Now, you're that young guy going to the gym with the eight-pack. That's not what you're thinking. Maybe you're much, much older just now, and you're thinking, oh, this is what I've become. But it's what you always were. It's true that, 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 that the newest-born baby in this congregation is a baby that has the principle of death within it. Why am I so shocked when a phone rings, hi, it's so-and-so. I just wanted to tell you that I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. 
And I'm really shocked. And I just hate it. And I'm so angry about it. And yet, that's my body. That's your body. That, that's this world in which we live. And it seems just so unfair and so wrong. We have bodies that decay. And there are all kinds of talks. I mean, I'm reading the, the tech giants. Um, Steve Jobs, for example, was a vegan and you know, he thought he could preserve his body. Bill Gates and others, they're all trying, all these tech giants are all trying to find ways that they can, they can preserve themselves for a much, much longer. And the whole transhuman stuff where robotics and so on is meant to, ultimately, I think they're just turning us into machines, not saving us as human beings. The fact is that as human beings, we decay. But, says Paul, we have living spirits inside dying bodies. The body is dying because of sin. The spirit is living because of righteousness. Our, bo- our bodies became mortal because of Adam's sin. He said that already in chapter 5. Our spirits are alive because of Christ's righteousness. You can go back and read the whole of chapter 5. That is the argument. Here's the astonishing thing for every Christian believer. You have a dying body but a living spirit. Calvin says this, the children of God are counted spiritual, not on the ground of a full and complete perfection, but only on account of the newness of life that has begun in them. See, there's this paradox. That baby, I I watched uh, just an incredible video that they've done of, of an embryo growing in the womb. And that principle of life in the embryo, that baby coming to full term and then being born, that tiny baby being held in the hands And you think that's the beginning of life. But actually it's the beginning of death. But what's happened to the Christian is this. The Holy Spirit has put in us the beginning of of life. And it's just this this incredible change and turnaround. Because the spiritual life, says Paul, that we have now guarantees the resurrection of our physical bodies. That's our ultimate destiny. Our bodies are not yet redeemed, but they will be. How can we be so sure? Because of the indwelling spirit. The spirit is not just the spirit of life, but he's also the spirit of resurrection. That's why, again, if you go back and read through Romans, you read about the resurrecting father, the resurrected son, and the spirit of resurrection. Jesus being resurrected from the dead, we say so flippantly, we sing about so easily, And yet it is the most incredible, astonishing thing because it means that when you look in the mirror and you realize that your physical body is going to decay, yet because of the resurrection of Jesus, it's not. It's going to be raised. Christ's resurrection is the pledge and the pattern of ours. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the one that will give life to our bodies as he has given life to our spirits. Ezekiel 37 For example, just again, I haven't time to read that, but verses 1 to 14, or 1 Corinthians 6, 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. That's an incredible thought. 
my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my grandparents. God will bring with Jesus them back. You have a child that's died. And that child you dedicated to the Lord, God will bring with Jesus that child back. It really is just an incredible promise. I mean, it's such an incredible promise that I understand why people don't believe it. But if you say you're a Christian, this is what Christ teaches. This is what the gospel teaches. But we're not done yet because the resurrected body is not just a revived one or a resuscitated one. It's not as though you've gone into the grave and woof, that's you. You're out and you're back the way you were. It's a transformed one. And this is so hard to imagine. It's a body which will be free from all weakness, free from disease, free from pain, free from decay, free from death. Sorry, all you FY1s, there are no jobs for you in heaven. Yeah, that's it. Your, your, your job is strictly for here on earth, and probably mine as well, to be honest. But there's no need for doctors and dentists in heaven. There's no need for psychiatrists and psychologists in heaven. There's no need for counselors. Why? Because you will have a transformed body that will not be able to decay. You know, one of the most horrible diseases is dementia. There's no dementia in heaven. You won't forget anything. In fact, all that you'll be doing in heaven is learning more and more about God and Christ. I love, again, uh, I feel like I can't go a sermon without quoting Calvin and Augustine and now Chrysostom. So um, here goes Augustine. I love this. Because, he says, in the coming glorification, the body will no longer die, but will also be incapable of dying. He does not say that he will quicken your dead bodies, but your mortal bodies. For then the bodies won't be merely beyond death, but they are incapable of death. Your body, my body right now, is not capable of living forever. But the revived, if you like, the transformed, risen, resurrection body will be incapable of death and incapable of sin. Now, you, you, can take, you, can, you can take hours and days thinking about that, and I don't think we'll get anywhere near. See, the Greeks had this idea that the spirit would be freed from the body. You know, the body was corrupting, the body was decaying, the body was sarks, the body was flesh, and somehow the ultimate is to escape from the body. That, that's what Buddhism teaches, by the way. Nirvana is into nothingness. I cannot understand for the life of me why so many people are into Buddhism. Probably because they just don't know what it means. But the idea of nothingness, the ultimate release from the body, that's not what Christianity teaches. The gospel's good news for the body. So, as I said, no cancer, no sin, no sleepless nights. Maybe another thing as well, and, and then I better, I'm, I'm going too much into this, but I just, I just think it's wonderful. Our bodies already speak, but we miscommunicate so much. That won't happen in glory. There'll be a full correspondence, if you like, between body and spirit. You know, sometimes someone comes to say, are you all right, David? I say, what? Yeah, you look miserable. Actually, I'm dancing inside. I'm a Scottish Calvinist. Just <laughs> take a chill pill. I'm, I'm okay. But sometimes, oh, you look really angry. Or No, sometimes we communicate with our bodies, really, and then other times there's a miscommunication. That won't exist in heaven because of the power of the Spirit 
who lives in us. And that's why the words of See What a Morning that we sang at the beginning are so appropriate. And I, I actually find it really hard to sing the words, um, death is dead, Christ has won, without turning all charismatic. That's, that's when my inner charismatic, that's when my hands want to go, yes, that's incredible. And you should have that as well. I mean, really, that's astonishing. Death is dead. I've stood in so many gravesides. I've been at that ugliest of places, crematorium. There are no crematorium in heaven. Thank God for that. And just to think, death is dead. Death hasn't won. Christ has won. And that's what Paul is saying is the great obligation of the gospel. But there is an obligation. It's not a but, it's and. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You could mean, people say, oh, that's wonderful. Jesus has saved me and life is wonderful and I'm, that's just great. So this is what a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians come to church, think about death and Jesus and Jesus saving them, and are very thankful, sing a nice song, go home, and then get on with life as though that weren't true, and live lives which almost contradict that. There's a passivity that occurs in our lives. Why do we need to do anything if God is going to do all of this and if the Spirit lives in us? Because if you really want to live, you turn away from the flesh or the fleshly lifestyle and you submit to the Spirit's control and direction. If the Spirit is within you, then you will want to. So, we have an obligation. We, have, we owe it to God to live a righteous life. We, we no longer live according to the flesh. It has no claim on us. We owe it nothing. We owe the Spirit everything. So you owe your body nothing. Your body says, go and take another drink. Your body says, you need to overindulge in that food. Your body says, well, why don't you just buy something richer and more luxurious? And you have to say, no, I don't owe you anything. I owe the Spirit. I owe Jesus. And what does he want me to do? John Stott says this, we are in debt to the indwelling spirit of life to live out our God-given life and to put to death everything which threatens it or is incompatible with it. Now, I think Paul makes an incredible challenge here because he's using the second person. And he's saying, you, you have to put to death the misdeeds of the body because there's a kind of life which leads to death and there's a kind of death which leads to life. And so I want just to just talk for a wee bit about an old, old word, but I can't think of any contemporary words that would make sense, and it's just mortification. It only ever gets used by Christians, and even then Puritan Christians like Sinclair. Um, but it's, 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 it's a great word, mortification. What does it mean? It's not masochism taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain. It's not asceticism, resenting and rejecting the fact that we have bodies and natural bodily appetites. What mortification is, is putting to death anything that's evil. It's a rejection of evil. It's a crucifixion 
of our fallen nature with all its passions and desires. Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and, des- and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? Not just the sexual sins, but greed, pride, arrogance, bitterness, hypocrisy. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because the sarks craves. You notice how we sang Psalm 106 right at the end there? Yeah, we, didn't, we didn't actually sing these verses. We, we read them. 106, right at the very end of that bit that we read, verse 15. He gave them what they desired. And they got a wasting disease. He gave them what they desired. You have a choice as a Christian. As a Christian, you have a choice. You can feed your flesh. You can live according to the flesh. Or you can live according to the spirit. Because mortification is something that we do. I find it completely bizarre that people think that because they believe in the Holy Spirit, they've just got to sit back and the Holy Spirit is going to enable them to live this wonderful Christian life. There's an element of truth in it, but there's a great deal of falsehood in that. We don't just wait till we are dead. We put to death. We are responsible for putting evil to death. We can only do this by the power of the Spirit, but He's within us. It gives us the desire and the determination and the discipline to reject evil. This is done in two ways. There's a negative side. We repudiate everything we know to be wrong. Chapter 13, verse 14, Paul's going to go on and say, we do not even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So, you're sitting at home, up on the television comes some pornography, whatever. As a Christian, you don't even think. You just say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm putting that to death. Or you're, you're in an environment where people around you are all getting drunk and they want to give you another drink. and You, you just say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That's what Jesus meant by gouging out our offending eye or cutting off our offending hand or foot. We do not even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me tell you this. If you are going to bed at night thinking how you can gratify your desires, then what's going to happen is that the following day or the following week, you will at some point. There's a negative side. There's a side in which you say, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to pull back from this. The positive side is that we set our mind and our spirit on what God desires. We think about what is noble and right and pure and lovely. We set our hearts on things above. There is what Edwards calls the expulsive power of a new affection. Because we love Jesus, we're not going to. It's a bit like somebody who gets married who's been, inverted commas, a bit of a lad and, you know, always going off with different women, but he's... He falls in love, marries his wife, and because he loves his wife, he has eyes for nobody else. That's what the Christian is to be like with Jesus Christ. Mortification, aspiration, hungering, and thirsting for what is good go together. They're in the present tense. They're what we should be doing now. Now we should be putting to death because there's always this battle because the sarks is always going to come back always going to fight back. You you just don't get rid of it until we get to glory and get our new bodies. So we do have to. There's a a constant struggle and a constant battle. It's a form of addiction. Some of you here are addicted to computer games. 
You can't stop playing them. Some of us are addicted to our phones. Apparently, 96 times in a day, you have to look at it. I, I do it way more than that. So, you know, can you, can you not do it? Can you not play? I mean, I remember once I, I got, really got into this computer game. It was really, really hard to stop playing it. Because every time I had a spare moment, I'd say, oh, yeah. And that was without a mobile phone. I want to play this. It's very easy for us to get addicted to stuff. And that's why we do need to put some things to death. We do need to say, no, we're not going to do that. No, that's gone. But we, we most of all need to see Christ in his beauty. When I listened to the sermons last Sunday, both morning and evening, um, I could sense even on the recording that, that there was an, an atmosphere of stillness and amazement at the beauty of Jesus. And that's what, why, why are you going to have junk food when you can have the best steak in the world? Once you've tasted the best steak, you don't want the junk food. And it's the same thing. Why should we practice mortification? It does sound so horrible, you know, time for some mortification. I guess a sermon on mortification won't go down well, but one of the greatest books I've ever read is John Owen on mortification. Mortification is kind of contrary to our lazy self-indulgence and desire for soft comfort, but we have an obligation because mortification is the only road to life. And there's that, that marvelous promise, if you put to death, he says, you will live. There's a rich, abundant, satisfying life for those who put the misdeeds of the body to death. Those who indulge their flesh die. And those who put to death the sarks live. What the world calls life, which is a desirable self-indulgence, it leads to alienation from God and it leads to death. Whereas putting to death evil actually leads to real life. And that's why we're called to submit to the work of the Spirit. Which brings us back to again asking, how do we know we are in Christ? Look, you don't know you're in Christ because you're perfect. You don't know you're in Christ because of your feelings. You know it because of the Spirit He has given us. And what the Spirit has given you is a desire for Jesus. You're the person who prays, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You're the person who wants to know Christ better. You're the person who's increasingly aware of your own sin and horrified by it, and yet at the same time drawn to Jesus Christ. Those who love God, those who have the Spirit of God, are those who obey His commands. We can backslide, we can grow cold, we can turn away. But the Spirit always draws us and brings us back. Without the Spirit, this church is dead. Without the Spirit, I am dead. You are dead. But with the Spirit, we have life. That's why the Spirit is such a great gift. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free. It's a great gift. Christ died to forgive us our sins and to give us His Spirit. I just ask simply, if you have this gift, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You need the Holy Spirit, not so that you can speak in tongues. 
You need the Holy Spirit not so that you can heal people. You need the Holy Spirit not so that you can have secrets, secret insight to what's going to happen in the future. You need the Holy Spirit because there's an enemy within you, yourself, which is so powerful that nothing you can do and nothing anyone else can do can ever defeat it. But the Holy Spirit can and does. And you need the Holy Spirit because having the Holy Spirit, you never die. Even your body will be raised. And if you are a Christian, if I'm here longer than you and I get to do your funeral, I will not mourn as those who have no hope. And I'll not bury you in a graveyard or a crematorium and say, that's it, that's them gone. No, your body is going to be raised and it's going to be almost unrecognizable. I think it will be recognizable, but almost unrecognizable, like Jesus's, and yet incredible. So you're a Christian, you've got that. We have to live like that. We have to live like that. Brothers and sisters, we have to live like that. We have an obligation, not least to our fellow human beings who are dead in sins and trespasses, who don't have the Holy Spirit. We want to give people the Holy Spirit. Owen will forgive me this, but um, Owen here once said something to me that I thought, no, that's wrong. He came to help us up at the manse one time, and I thanked him for doing it. I think it was hanging wallpaper or doing something that I'm useless at, and he was great at And I said, thank you so much for doing that. And Owen turned to me, and he says, no, 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 you're the man that gave me the Holy Spirit. And I thought, wow, (laughs) my charismatic friends will love that. But actually, uh, I was wrong, and Owen was right, because I gave the gospel. And that's what the Holy Spirit, that's how you get the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. You don't get the Holy Spirit through some kind of special guy going around saying, right, I'm going to zap you with the Holy Spirit and I'm going to give you... No, no, no. The Holy Spirit comes through the gospel. And every time we worship here, the Holy Spirit is present. And the Holy Spirit is working. And the Holy Spirit is healing. And the Holy Spirit is reassuring. That's why Paul's so excited in Romans 8. And we're not even... Well, we are about a third of the way through it. We're not halfway through it. And there is more yet to come which we will do next week. And by the way, can I just say this? If you are not a Christian, you're missing out. You really are missing out. I'm sorry, you know this. You must know this. Your body is dead. But you are not going to die and go to heaven without knowing Christ. You're not. You need to know Christ. And you are not going to die, by the way, and just be turned into dust and that's it. You are going to be raised and you're going to be raised to a judgment because you're going to have to account for God for everything you have done whilst in the body. And you really do not want to be on the judgment day standing there in your own righteousness. You want to be standing there knowing, knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. And I would plead with you to seek him and to find him. We shall pray, and I want to pray. I'm going to use a prayer that I I read uh, yesterday in the Valley of Vision. I just thought it was so beautiful, and and I thought it would be appropriate to end with this prayer. So let's just bow our heads and pray. Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. He was stripped 
that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed. He was made thirsty that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted. He was made a shame that I might inherit glory. He entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glorious diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine. Jesus experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. He closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired, that I might forever live. O Father, who spared not your only Son, that you might spare me, transfer your love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore you by lips and life. O that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portal open. Go forth, all conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Amen. Amen. We'll finish by singing the testimony of the Christian Christ is mine forevermore. Um, we sang this song before and somebody contacted me and said, it talks about Jesus being our reward. Isn't this kind of like works? I'm going, no, 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 no. He is your shield, your very great reward. Jesus is the reward. So I'm going to sing this minor days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him, yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. Uh, that's what Paul's talking about, this conflict. Let's serve the Lord. Let's stand and sing and worship him. And please remain standing for the benediction.